The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. November 1st and 2nd, we've not done a missions conference for several years. We're going to be doing a missions conference on that Friday and Saturday. And uh, take a look at that. Put it on your calendar. There's information in the sheet that you have. There's information on current rats, information on our website as well. Also, we want to be in prayer for Grace Christian Church in uh, Colleen as they've lost, uh, if you saw the news this past week, uh, three of their pastors, a senior pastor and his wife and one of their associates were killed in an accident. So we're going to pray for them in a minute as well. We have some special guests with us uh, this morning. Uh, you're going to be hearing from Celeste Musa Court in a few minutes. We're going to do an interview. Uh, but with them is uh, Benjamin Waria. You're out there somewhere. Would you welcome Benjamin? He's the uh, director for Rwanda of Alarm Ministries. Good to have you, brother. I, I, today's my first day to meet Benjamin as well. I've been there several times, but uh, we haven't had the privilege of meeting. And uh, this morning, you've got a special treat in store. God has been working our body in the morning. Uh, so would you welcome to the stage this morning, Celeste and Musakora, my dear friend and brother in Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you, my brother. Thank you. Celestin is a uh, dear friend. We have known one another for many years, but uh, some of you are, are new and haven't been here. A number of you probably since he has been here. It's been a few years. How many of you have not uh, been here on a Sunday when Celestin has spoken before? Let me see your hands. Yeah. Well, about half of you. So before we begin this, uh, there's a table in the hallway right uh, outside these doors. It's a table set up. Uh, I don't think there are any books left. Celestin's written, Celestin's written a book. We'll pop it up and you can order it online. Uh, but there are some brochures out there. There's also an email sign-up list if you want to hear about Alarm Ministries uh, and what's happening there, as well as an opportunity to give to them. So if you'd like to do those things, just take a minute, stop at the table in the hallway, and uh, get that information. Good to have you back, brother. Thank you. It's good to be back. <laughs> Looking forward to it. TBC is uh, home away from home for you guys. Indeed. Since 1996, yeah. the summer, I have been uh, one of you. And uh, you can't go away from me, so I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we're privileged not only to have Celestin with us, but uh, his beautiful wife, Bernadette, is with us as well. Bernadette, would you stand so we can welcome you? <laughs> there we go. Thank you. She's your only wife, too, is that right? Yes. That's uh, good. My only wife. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, but you have a bunch of kids, and uh, they all have different last names, so tell us about that. Um, in fact, uh, people ask my wife, Bernadette, um, because we have four children who have different last names, and so people ask my wife, have you been married four times? <laughs> no, just once with uh, this uh, crazy man. Uh, we have four kids uh, who are... Um, uh, now adults, uh, so uh, Providence is uh, uh, here actually uh, doing some uh, residency, and uh, she was, I don't know if she's back in the room, uh, but she's uh, 28, and uh, she will probably kill me uh, for saying her age. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our second daughter, Prudence, is in Washington, D.C. She is uh, involved in uh, an organization dealing with uh, uh, policy, especially international uh, development, international politics, and we have uh, two sons. Samuel is 23. He's uh, uh, finishing Criswell College. He's involved in the youth ministry at uh, First Baptist uh, Richardson, 
Our youngest, Emmanuel, is uh, not far from here. He is at Blin College and uh, is uh, more interested in the criminal justice. And so we have been blessed to have four children. And uh, the last names occur because of... Uh... You know, names uh, in Rwanda, names have different meaning. When a child is born, he is given a name uh, depending, on the, depending on the situation in which they are born. So uh, our firstborn, Providence, uh, Wimana means the one belong to God. And then Prudence, her last name is Ukwishate, which means according to God's will. Uh, Samuel, his name is Musabjimana. I have asked him of God, which is almost the same as Samuel in um, uh, Hebrew. Our youngest, Emmanuel, his last name is Hagumimana. God reigns, God exists. So those names were given because of the situation in which we were at that time. And you can tell from uh, Celestin's accent, he's not from here. Uh, <laughs> kind of East Texas like Chase Bowers is what, what I'm picking up. <laughs> but, uh, but he's from, uh, he and Bernadette are from the continent of Africa, as you heard, and from the little country of Rwanda that's circled there. Uh, the big lake you see is Lake Kivu to the south is Tanzania, Kenya uh, above, a little north and uh, east of there, and to the west is the Republic of Congo. So... Take a look at that and uh, memorize that map because we're going to quiz you on it later. And, uh, <laughs> but it gives you a feel, actually, for where they're from and what home is like. They're from the northwest region of Rwanda, and that's going to play a role in his testimony as we see it in a minute. Well, you've got a last name, too, and uh, your last name is Musakura. And uh, Kirawandan is Celestin's native tongue, by the way. Uh, English is his fourth language, so he's doing pretty well for English, isn't he? I mean, as uh, you see that. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> he's trying hard. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there you go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Tell us uh, what the name Musakura means, your last name, and how you came to get that name. Um, my mother, after she got married, she could not have children for nine years. And uh, the belief in Rwanda and many countries, uh, the belief system is that if there are no children, the family is because of the curse. And so my mother was thought to be a cursed woman, and so the ancestors had closed her womb. And because of the belief, my mother could not go to the fountain to, with other women. She could not sit with other women in the village because they feared the curse would affect them. And so my mother could not even hold babies. Um, she could not touch the babies. No mother would allow her to touch their babies because they believed if she touched the babies, the babies would die. And so she became an outcast in the village. And so for nine years, she offered sacrifices hoping that the speed of the day, the ancestors will give her a child. And my father was at the age, and he was chasing her away, when suddenly she was pregnant. In fact, she did not believe she was pregnant. And so when I was born, she named me Savior. Now, because of that, being born, even if I had died one minute, the curse had been taken away. And so she said, because I was born, she's able to fellowship with other women. And so that's why I became her savior, hence the name of Musekura Savior. Hmm. So as the firstborn, that curse was taken away, uh, and uh, 
that's how the name came about. This is a typical village in Rwanda. Rwanda is a beautiful country. A number in our body have been there. And uh, it reminds me of an uh, undeveloped Tuscan area of region, actually. It's actually gorgeous. This is not the village that uh, Celeste and Bernadette are from, but it gives you an idea of what that village looks like today. Uh, Bev loves to hear the story about uh, you growing up and, uh, and sharing your hut with others. Uh, why don't you share that story with us? What was it like growing up in Rwanda? You were born in 1959. Uh, what was it like growing up in Rwanda as a young boy? Now, in 1959, when I was born, um, life was good, actually, because we didn't know there was different, any, any different, you know. Uh, so when I went to, I grew up playing with the boys and soccer, you know, and uh, going to school, primary school, elementary school, five miles one way, uh, living in the hut, small house, grass-sucked house, and uh, we all lived together, so we have the goats and the sheep and, and the chickens. And so in the night when we sleep here on this platform, the goats and sheep will sleep on, you know, just eye to eye. And, you know, we will have warm fellowship. They will, you know, they, I mean, we had fun. They, they, we didn't have an alarm clock. Early in the morning, the rooster would wake us up, say, time to get up, boys, and... Life was good. So that's how we grew up, and uh, literally we didn't know there was any different life. I remember you telling me you all had running water. You were the one who ran for the water. Is uh, that right? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, there was no water. In fact, uh, we would go five, maybe three miles to get water from the community fountain, and um, we shared water in the house when the, the goats would fight for water, fight for water, and... The, the, the beans, the water from the beans hmm. uh, was supposed to be for the goat, but then I said, no, this is good soup, so who gets it fast, you know? <laughs> and because you were the savior of the, of the family and uh, spared your mom's reputation, she wanted you to become a uh, priest, actually, and not the kind of priest we know, though, so tell us uh, what happened. Um, again, because of the belief, uh, until today, uh, no, there are many families who still worship the dead, uh, in Africa, there are those who do not know Christ. They're still believing in the life after death, but also they believe the ancestors are the ones who cause good things to happen or bad things to happen. And so because my mother believed that the ancestors have had her prayers, then she dedicated me as a, a thanksgiving to the ancestors. She dedicated me to be the traditional priest. And so from the age of five, I began to learn how to offer sacrifices. So I would go to this uh, old lady in the village who was the medium, who was a diviner who would teach and train me how to offer sacrifices. And at the age of seven, eight, I knew how to slaughter chicken, to slaughter goat, to take the blood of animals and the meat and the banana beer in this small uh, uh, shrine and make sacrifices and pray to the spirit of the dead to protect me, protect my brothers and my sister and the whole village so that life would be better. That's how they believe. So I became really the one who provides so that everybody can be saved, can be spared from the wrath and the calamity from the ancestors. So he was on a track to become the village priest and uh, for his family, mom had dedicated him just as uh, Samuel had been dedicated in the Old Testament really. And so uh, the result of that is he's on this pathway to become a pagan priest. But uh, things changed. Things changed. You met this man, and uh, when you met him, uh, introduce us to him, and uh, tell us what it was like to meet him. He's the first Muzungu you met. Yes. Uh, Muzungu means Swahili. In, I mean, Muzungu means uh, 
white person in Swahili or Kinyarwanda or Muzungu, Muzungu. Uh, so I was turning 15. I had never seen this funny looking thing in my life. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, Elwin Edward Kyle had been a missionary in the Congo and the president then in the Congo, they chased all the missionaries. So he crossed the border. He was living in the Goma area. He crossed the border to Gisenyi. Instead of staying in the city of Gisenyi, he would go in the villages to share the gospel. So um, being in the village, in the bush, when we saw uh, Kyle, uh, we literally thought he was either one of the animals from the bush or one of the ancestors from the graves. And so he had long hair, Gary, at that time. <laughs> he had uh, long hair. We would go and pull his hair and pinch him and, and rub to see if the white stuff would come off. And then he began to tell us about God who loved the world. He told us about Jesus who died, who shed his blood on the cross, that we boys, even when we put our faith in him, we can speak to God directly. See, it made an appeal for me because when I heard that trusting Jesus gives me the, the, I guess the privilege to speak to God directly without my ancestors, without shedding blood, then I thought he was one of the, the best ancestors because he's not asking me blood. He gave his own blood. And so, Kyle introduced me to Christ and let alone I gave my life to Christ in 1976 because I had to wait because my parents had warned me and others that if we believe in the God of this white man, this Muzungu, bad things will happen. Because his God is different from our God. And our ancestors will kill us or will kill our gods. Will kill our, our people if we accept the God that the white man was preaching. So uh, let alone um, two years later in high school, I had just finished the first year of high school. I really was convinced that if this Jesus, that this mission is preaching is better than my ancestors, then I give my life to Christ. Then he will take care of the rest. And so 1976, age of 17, I surrendered my life to Christ. Hmm. That was the beginning of my journey with Christ. Amazing, isn't it? By God's Amen. grace. Amen. Thank you. So you came to faith in Christ, and it impacted your life, and it impacted your family's life. And the impact on your family was not positive. Tell us uh, what happened in your journey next with them. You know, that time... When I gave my life to Christ, I knew um, something would happen, but I don't, didn't know exactly what, because I believed what my parents had said may happen. But uh, I never knew that I was going to be a victim uh, to be chased away from home. So uh, I had just finished high school. The high school was uh, about 60 hours from home. It was a boarding school. When my parents heard that I gave my life to Christ, they sent a delegation telling me I don't belong to them anymore. They said, never come back home again. So I, become, I became a, a, a beggar. I became a street boy. I ate from the trash. I could not go to my um, uncles. I could not go to my aunt because everybody believed bad things would happen if I went to their home. And so it was, uh, um, even though, again, I didn't know much about Christianity except this little faith but when I was disowned by my own family 
I didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, eating from the trash, from the garbage, begging for students to take me to their homes, they would refuse because they believed in the same thing. It was difficult for me. You can imagine persecution. For three years, he was not allowed back to his village, not allowed back to his family, not allowed to see his mom and dad. And so for three years, he's separated from them because of faith in Christ. So the mixed emotions of being excited about knowing Jesus and then the emotion of not being able to return to your family. Some of you go through difficult times, and you recognize Christ is enough. And your difficult times may not be like Celestine's, but you recognize it's the same Savior and the same hope. And uh, it puts things in perspective for us as a nation, doesn't it, as a people as well. Um, During that time, your family disowned you. You don't have a way to make a living. You're in school, and uh, you've got to find a way to stay in school. And uh, God did a miracle. I mean, he provided. uh, There's a lady from Ohio uh, whose name is Mary. Tell us about Mary. When... I could not go back home. You know, the school is not free. You have to pay fees. You have to buy a uniform. You have to do um, everything for you to go to school. And so because of my situation, then I became a street boy, went naked. In fact, uh, the only clothes that I had on, the only shorts I had on, had windows at the bottom. (laughs) And uh, going to look for the missionary, uh, Kyle, and uh, I wanted him to give me one of his shots uh, so that he would cover my behind. I also wanted him to help me to go to school. When I saw him, he told me that he had some little money. What had happened, Kyle had written a letter to his church in Cleveland, Ohio, about this skinny, ugly boy who needs help. Mary was 69 years old when she read the letter from the missionary from Rwanda the mission is talking about this skinny, ugly boy who needs help, who needs money to pay fees so he can go back to school. Mary began to, to pray. Mary had no savings. She was a widow. She was living on the welfare. She was being helped herself. But she hoped that somebody in the church with money would help this skinny, ugly boy to go back to school. Three months later, she learned that nobody did anything. And this is what she did for six years, literally for me to be here today. Every morning, Mary woke up, or every evening, she woke up, she walked alongside the highway, picking up the trash can, the cardboards. Then she would go to recycle them. At the end of the month, she would gather all the coins. She would send six or seven dollars to Kyle in Rwanda for the skinny, ugly boy. That's how I was able to go to high school. And when I finished high school, I wanted to tell my mom about Christ. So, but I could not know how I was sent to Congo to Bible school in 1983, end of June, June 25th, I graduated, and Mary died five days after that. And so Mary literally lived long enough picking the cardboard in the trash can for the skinny, ugly boy. But of course, you know, I'm no longer skinny, I'm a fat Baptist preacher. <laughs> but it is because of Mary that I'm here today. What an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, that's just amazing. Thank God. Praise God. Hey, you know, you may not have much, uh, but it's faithfulness. And here's a lady who's going to have a lot of rewards in heaven through her faithfulness, picking up cardboard boxes and uh, aluminum cans and turning them in. And God's called us all to be faithful. If you have plenty or you have much, he's called you to be faithful. 
So it's a great story. You didn't get to meet Mary, did you? No, I did not meet Mary. Um, I got one letter when she wrote to me about how she became my mom. And uh, I can't wait. When I get to heaven after hugging Jesus, I say, where's Mary? I'm sure she will be there waiting for me. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure today she's looking down and saying, look, the boy has become a fat Baptist preacher. And, uh, can't wait to see her. You were able to go back to your village and uh, actually... Uh, there's a great story there about the work that God did in your family. Seven years later, my family had disowned me. I showed up. I was scared. I was young. Just finished Bible school, young and stupid, and not knowing what's going to happen. And I remember praying in 1983 that summer, in end of June, saying, Lord, I don't know if anybody's going to believe. I don't know if anybody in this village is, come, is going to come to Christ, but please if nobody else is saved, please save my mother. And so I went and told my mother about the real Savior. I told her, I'm not your Savior. I want to tell you about the Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved me, who kept me from the ancestors, and uh, who redeemed me. And so by God's grace, I led my mom to Christ. My mom is, uh, um, I think we may have a photo or picture of, of oh, yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mom is alive. She is uh, 87. And uh, she came to Christ the same night. She was beaten up by my father because my father said, you are ganging with your son. But uh, my brother came to Christ. He is a better preacher than I am. He's over about 52 churches. And uh, then later on, I led my father to Christ. And many people in my village came to Christ because many of them actually had told the ancestors that they had killed me. But I told them, Jesus is more strong and powerful than the spirit of the dead. He has protected me. So many people in my village came to Christ, and God used me, and God transformed my village. And so I'm very grateful for his grace in my family and in my village. So from being trained as a pagan priest as a little boy to uh, seeing that village, many of them come to faith. That's amazing. And to see what God can do in a transformed life. Mm-hmm. April 1994, um, when you hear that date, what are the emotions? For, I think for every Rwandan, that's not a good day to remember. We wish we could forget 1994. See, the genocide, the killing, within 100 days, between April 6th and the end of July, about 1 million people were murdered. And many times, neighbors killing neighbors. Sometimes relatives killing relatives because... They were different from different tribes. It's a bad, bad day to remember. Bad time because this time, even Christians who sit in the same pews like we are sitting today, they killed one another. Because many of them believed they were Hutus or Tutsi first, and then a Christian second. It was a time when our Christian faith was tested because most of the people in Rwanda at that time because of lack of teaching, because of lack of discipleship, many believed their identity in Christ was not important. What was more important for them was their tribal identity. It was a time when pastors actually was, were also living because they had lost their loved one. Those days are not days to remember. But unfortunately, there were days that changed all our lives, changed that... Uh, Days that actually gave us a new way of looking at what does it mean to follow Christ 
as a disciple of Christ. Over a million people killed in a short period of time, 90% by machete. Family against family, friend against friend, and uh, one of the greatest tragedies in, in the history of last century. Um, but God used the genocide really to change your heart, change your life, and change your direction in some ways. Uh, this is a picture of a refugee camp, and uh, just outside of the Rwandan borders, Congo. And uh, Rwandans fled to many places, but many of them fled to Congo. And uh, there were four camps, four refugee camps that were United Nations and others set up. And uh, they were 30 miles from the one to the furthest one. And 1.2 million people uh, in rice lines and uh, bark stripped off of trees because they had taken the bark and boiled it in water to make soup. And uh, many died of dysentery and typhoid. And it was just a real tragedy. But God used that in your life to give you some direction where you would be even now. So share with us what happened. We were in Nairobi, uh, my wife and I and our four children. Uh, I was finishing the seminar in Nairobi, uh, getting ready to go back in Rwanda to continue the ministry uh, within the Baptist church. And so one million people are killed, three million have fled, some are living in the camps in the Congo. These camps were in uh, Congo, outside in Goma, and outside Goma. But the biggest camp was in Mwanza in Tanzania. And uh, three million have left. The country is empty. So we got a job in Nairobi with SIM. Three months in the job, the Lord began to speak to me, uh, speak to talk to, speak to us, me and Benadette, began to wrestle with what God will have us do. Of course, we didn't know that time what God was calling us to do because the only thing that we had from God was to go back to work and help the pastors who were quitting. You know, pastors who survived. Of course, you uh, know about between 60 and 70% of the pastors and church leaders were murdered together with the rest of the people. The few who survived, some of the pastors who survived had lost their wives and their children. Some of the pastors had gone to do ministry to come back home to find their wife and their children chopped into pieces. Some of the pastors had left uh, hiding the people in their homes and the people were killed in their houses. Some pastors had been preaching when the militia or the rebels came and picked the members of their congregation and they killed them, killed them in the yard of the church. Those pastors were saying, can I be a pastor again? Some of them were saying, God, where were you when my wife and children were murdered? Some of the pastors were saying, is, are we being punished because we left our ancestral worship? So some pastors survived, they were quitting the ministry and they were blaming God, they were angry, they were bitter. Some of the pastors in the camps were saying, I know somebody who killed my wife and children. I know where they are. Can I go and kill them? and forgive them after killing them. It was a terrible time. And so the Lord called us, Bernard and I, to go to minister to them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to begin to help them deal with the anger and the bitterness and the rage. And we began to work with them to realize that we Christians, we have been forgiven, and therefore we, not, not, we should not follow the tribes for revenge. We need to preach forgiveness and reconciliation. That's how we, find, we found ourselves, myself, going in the refugee camps, finding those pastors or ministering to those who were in Kenya and encouraging them, helping them, restoring them back into ministry 
to train, to teach people that reconciliation is the key. Forgiveness has to take place if we need to hope again. And so that's why at the beginning of Alarm, 19 years later, we are doing more than what we began with, but it was a tough time to begin this ministry. And so Celestin would fly from Nairobi to Komakongo. He would enter these refugee camps. His life was threatened many times and uh, just gone in to minister to these people, to give them hope, to give them a message of hope, a message of reconciliation, a message of what God had done. I received a phone call sometime in the late fall of 1995, and it was from a friend of, a friend of TBC's, Craig Ludrick, who was working in uh, Dallas at the time for a ministry. And he said, Gary, would you be willing to go and minister to pastors in the refugee camps in the Congo? And honestly, we had no idea what that meant. Uh, we said, sure, we'll go wherever God gives us an opportunity. And uh, he said, there's a guy in Nairobi named Celestin Musakor. You'll meet him. He's the one that will take you into the camps, and you guys will do ministry there. And so the genocide launched a ministry, but it also launched a relationship that now is almost 20 years old. And um, had some side, uh, side walls back then. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, we met in uh, Nairobi, and we flew into Goma. And uh, it's the most amazing thing I've experienced in my life to this day. Um, We've had the privilege to represent you in many places. And when we represented you here, it was just one of the most uh, moving experiences. brings tears to my eyes, I think about it even now. Uh, We had no idea what we are getting into. As I said, it was very dangerous. Uh, We found out the killers were also in the camps. And... But the thing I remember more than anything else is that uh, you and I were in the camps and uh, we were preaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can see our fancy sound system. It's a bullhorn, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm preaching English, obviously, and he's translating Akira Wanden and teaching on Hosea. And uh, uh, as you know, Hosea was uh, separated from his wife who became unfaithful, and then they reconciled. And I'll never forget, brother, we're in the middle of that uh, preaching, you and me, and all of a sudden there's weeping. There are about 170 pastors there, and a number of them just begin to weep. And so I stopped and turned this lesson and said, tell me what's happening. Uh, Tell me what's going on. I I don't understand. So fill in the blanks for us. Uh, Gary had shared a story um, when he began. When he was living here, he had just shared about how Bev hugged him by and sent him to uh, to Africa, and then Gary began to talk about Hosea, about his wife, and redeemed him, reconciliation, and majority of these pastors began to weep because that was a reminder of their dead wives. And so majority of these pastors were crying their wife had been killed. And so not only remembering that they have no wives, but also beginning to weep about what, how will God use them to bring reconciliation to the community. That was a beginning. Actually, most of these pastors there, Gary, uh, six years later, actually, Gary came back and Bev came back to Gisenyi because these pastors who were in this camp, some of them had really decided to quit, but many of them said, we are going to go back to stand again to follow our Lord and to serve him. Many were restored back in the ministry. Until today, many of them are in the ministry, but it was because you guys sent Gary and the team to serve them. And many of these pastors said, if Gary was not here, six years later they said, we will not be in the ministry. And so we had a, a kind of family reunion six years later. We met in Rwanda with the pastors 
who were saying, Gary, we are back in the ministry because when we were quitting, when we had given up hope, you came to us. So sometimes you may wonder how God uses you. One day you're going to meet these folks in heaven, and it's because of your generosity and your sending folks to minister that these things take place. And these guys are in ministry, literally ministering to hundreds and hundreds of people in Rwanda today because of you and because of your sending us and God using you and your gifts and your talents for the Savior. And I, I thought it would be good for you to hear that story because sometimes you may not receive, realize the reward that is directed towards you because of your grace, because of your generosity. Well, you can see that God had his hand on Celestin's life. When we were together in Nairobi, it was very clear to us that this was a special man. And uh, so, really, TBC once again stepped up. And uh, mm-hmm. we garnered the funds and did things to bring uh, his family to America mm-hmm. where he could pursue a master's as well as a Ph.D. at Dallas Seminary. So from a hut in northwestern Rwanda, he gets a Ph.D. at Dallas Seminary. But in the midst of that, tragedy struck your family. It was uh, Christmas 1997. And uh, tragedy came your way that, that, that time. Um, my family was murdered just two days after Christmas, 1997. Uh, my uh, people in my village were not killed during the genocide because we live near the border of Congo. My family, people in my village, most of the members of my church, they crossed the border and they went to the refugee camps uh, before the killing took place. And in my village. We had both Hutus and Tutsis. They lived together. Nobody was mad at that time. Three years later, they returned back in the country when there was relative peace. But as you know, even though genocide stopped in uh, July 1994, the reprisal of genocide, the revenge, continued on until early 2000. And so men with machetes and guns and uh, grenades and machetes and every kind of weapon came to my village. It was on Sunday, December 27th, just two days after Christmas, when members of my family and members of my congregation, place where Benet and I had been pastors about five years, had met to thank God for the ending of the year. They had survived all the killings, all the death in the refugee camps, but suddenly men came and murdered them. About 70 members of the church where I, I passed out, were killed, together with five. But seven members, when I was in Dallas, the news I got was seven members of my family were murdered, my mother, my father, his, my younger brother, his wife, two kids. Actually, my adopted sister, that mom had picked in the camp. So together, 70 people were murdered. And when I heard about the, the news, I was in Dallas. I woke up, Bernadette, we cried. I struggled with God, and uh, that was a time, Gary, that I began to ask God, where was God when this happened? The same questions I had tried to, to answer, the same questions the pastors were asking three years before, I found myself asking God, where were you? I hated, I want to hate, I felt angry against God, but also angry against those who murdered them, and I want to know who did it. It was the morning that God said, Celestine, I was there. Don't ask me who I was. They finished their journey. It is up to finish well. But also the Lord said, don't ask who did it. You want to know so you revenge. And of course I want to revenge, not to go to kill, but I wanted to hate them. I want to avoid them. 
and the Lord said, you need to forgive them before you see them. That was probably the wrestling that I had that night with God. So the word you got was, I'll never forget, Celestine called, and uh, mom, dad, uh, sister, brother-in-law, and their kids were all murdered. And we went to Dallas and had a memorial service at Dallas Seminary, actually, for his family. And uh, really, God had wrestled, you had wrestled with God, though, and forgiveness had already taken place. I wrestled with God because that morning I did it. I didn't know why I wanted to know who did it. But that morning, the Lord said, you want to know because you want revenge. And the Lord said, you need to forgive them before you know who did it. And I really wrestled with God because I didn't want to forgive. And the Lord said, you need to forgive because you don't need to know who did it. As I could that morning, I prayed. I said, Lord, I can't forgive until you give me grace. Unless you give me strength, I cannot forgive. God in his grace gave me courage. I prayed literally as I could. I forgave them. And I woke up my wife and my children. I told them what just happened. Uh, we prayed together, we cried, prayed, and, and forgave those who murdered my family and my friends. I'll never forget, uh, I had the privilege of uh, doing the sermon for the memorial service, and when we got the programs, a uh, picture of mom and dad and family members, and in that program, I'll never forget reading, and to those who've murdered those that we love, we offer you Christ's forgiveness. And as a family, they had written it in that program, and uh, just touched my heart in deep places, as you can imagine, to see what their family had done. We fast forward six months, though, and there's some good news that came out of that. You know, God uh, graciously gave me back my mom and my niece. So really, what had happened, miraculously, mysteriously, my mother fainted during the shooting, during the killing. My mother lost conscience, and so she fainted, and dead bodies fell upon her. She was under the dead bodies between four and five hours. She doesn't know exactly, but it was between four and five hours when she was buried and conscience under the dead bodies. So when she came back to her conscience, she pushed out the, the bodies and she began to run to the bush. Before she ran, she found, she saw a girl, a, a two-year-old baby nursing a dead mother. And she picked that that baby, and that was, for four days she didn't know that was her granddaughter. My mom was traumatized. She could not even recognize that her granddaughter. So my mother and my niece survived mysteriously. So it was six months later, because my mom went in the bush, and then from the forest, went in the Congo. Six months later, I was again sent uh, a letter that my mom was alive. In fact, I could not believe, because... That time, because of my work with the Hutus and Tutsis, I was on the list of people to be murdered by both the Hutus and Tutsis. And so I thought that was a plot to get me back to Rwanda to be killed. So I said, no, until my brother sent me a letter saying, yes, our mother is alive and the niece. And so that's how I got my mom and my niece back, literally from the dead. Amazing story, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. Amen. About, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, Bev and I had the privilege to go back for our third or fourth time, third time, I think, to Rwanda, and uh, I met his mom, and she comes walking up to the Jeep we're getting out of, and uh, I gave her a great big, she's a small lady, as you can see, I gave her a great big hug and said, you're the first person I did a funeral for who's still alive. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was just a, an amazing, amazing time. But yeah. fast forward one year after you found out your mom's alive, other family members have been murdered. You're in Kampala, Uganda, doing a pastor's conference, teaching on forgiveness and reconciliation. And you found something out in that crowd. In the crowd, there were three men whose fathers and brothers had murdered my family. And when I saw them, I became angry. I had stood up to begin the training. Again, these were Hutu and Tutsis from Rwanda, from the refugee camps in Goma and Tanzania. And here we are talking about how we Christians who have been forgiven, we need to preach forgiveness and reconciliation. And suddenly I see these men whose fathers and brothers murdered us of my family and my friend. Again, I felt angry and bitter. I wanted to go to choke them. At that moment, God said, Celestine, you need to stop because you are becoming tribal. You are looking at them through the eyes of tribe. Yes, these are the Tutsis, their fathers, their relatives murdered your family. But the ones you are looking are your brothers in Christ. So you need to stop and ask them to forgive you because you are becoming what you hate. I tell you, I struggled with God. I was trembling. I didn't, I did not want, I said, Lord, don't ask me to do that. But the Lord said, we have a choice here. Either to be a hypocrite who teaches what he doesn't practice, or to be a follower of Christ who practices what you teach and what you believe. And in his grace, once again, I asked for grace. And I called them forward. I asked them to forgive me because I had no right to hurt them. They were so kind. They forgave me. They said, we want you to forgive us, forgive our relatives, forgive our fathers and our brothers because we murdered. We were not there, but they, we were there because it is our brothers. We hugged, we cried, and that was the beginning. That was the time I learned again that forgiveness is a decision that I have to make. It's not how I feel. It's not if I feel to. It is a command. But also I learned that that began a journey because one of these men whose father and relative had murdered my father and the rest of my family members went back and took care of my mom. And people were saying, you are crazy. How can you trust? How can you entrust your mother in the hands of someone whose father and brothers murdered the rest of your family? And again, say, yes, because he's my brother in Christ. And because of forgiveness, we can trust him with our mother again. You carry a debt against someone. How can you not forgive? Ephesians 4 says, uh, forgive as you've been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And if you ever wanted to hear an example of that, I think you've just heard how that takes place. Celestine has written a book uh, on forgiveness, and uh, it's a story of his journey, but it's a theological book as well. And it's really well done. And uh, we had copies on the table. You can go online and buy some forgiving as we've been forgiven. Out of that came the birth of Alarm. Tell us about Alarm right now. And so as we began to work with the leaders, uh, pastors in Rwanda, we realized the main problem we have in Africa, in Eastern Central Africa, really people come to Christ but there's no deep teaching. As I said, many people kid each other, went to church together. And so tribalism had transcended their Christian identity. So we began to train pastors so they can disciple the people. And so today, Alarm, we are involved in eight countries in East and Central Africa. We have 56 full-time staff in those countries. So we are working in Rwanda, in Burundi, in Congo, 
in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Uganda, in South Sudan and Sudan, really focusing on three, uh, two most important things is discipling uh, leaders, training them, mentoring them, training pastors, give them uh, skills and tools, but also working with reconciliation to forgiveness, biblical forgiveness. And uh, our job, I mean, our calling is really how to move from tribal Christianity to biblical Christianity by empowering the church. And so we do this again by training, by empowering the leaders, and we are very grateful for the opportunity. You talk about the provident hand of God moving from a hut in Africa sharing with animals mm-hmm. to heading up a ministry uh, in eight nations. You can see the hand of God as he works in the lives of folks. And he can do that in your life. He can use you in some way, maybe not as large, but uh, in other ways to accomplish his purposes wherever it is. One of the places alarm is is Sudan. This is the picture of a, a boy soldier. There are many of those. Celestine has been there. I remember getting an email. Uh, Greg Gilchrist and I, uh, part of our body, have had the privilege of being on his board off and on for many years. Uh, get this uh, email from Celestine, and I think it was from Yi, actually, mm-hmm. uh, Sudan, where they had been fired upon and they had to go for cover and run for their lives. And uh, in the midst of that battle where they are and the things they're doing, bringing peace and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. You know, over the years, we've had the privilege of having a... Uh, just an amazing relationship with our sister church in Ukraine. And we've been praying that God may grant us favor and allow us to do that somewhere else. And it looks like uh, we've got the the roots of that anyway. Bernadette's brother is a pastor in Rwanda. Uh, He pastors this church, and uh, several of our folks have been there the last couple of years. And uh, we've got the fledging uh, sister church ministry that's taking place there. They're involved in housing uh, uh, orphans and being involved in their lives. And when they worship, it looks more like this than being in a building. It's a joint worship service uh, among a number of churches. So uh, God's at work. Celeste, what I'd like for you to do to close us is, would you just share a little bit about forgiveness and how we can apply that in our lives? Uh, Indeed, really, whether a situation like Rwanda or family members murdered or your husband not coming home, Uh, on time or your wife not cooking the best meals (laughs) really forgiveness is forgiveness and uh, we as Christians we have been given the gift forgiveness God has graciously forgiven us while we are yet sinners and so through this journey I have learned uh, from uh, Jesus from personal experience uh, from the scriptures that forgiveness for us is not a choice it's not even a recommendation it's not a feeling we forgive when we feel to forgiveness is a decision that we have to make every day in fact i never understood why in the prayer that jesus taught his disciples he would say give us our daily food our daily bread and forgive our sins so forgiveness and food how do they relate i came to learn that as we cannot live every day without our daily food we cannot live every day without forgiveness so forgiveness is a daily practice as food sustains our physical health forgiveness sustains our rational health every day because we live in a foreign world we live with foreign husband wives parents we need to learn to give the gift of forgiveness but also uh, jesus tells the story the unmerciful servant who in Matthew 18 after being forgiven so much 
could not forgive a fellow servant who had little debt. At the end of the story, Jesus said, God will not forgive you if you don't forgive each other from your heart. Now, Jesus knew definitely that we can forgive each other from the lips. And so forgiveness must be unconditional. We don't have to tell people they have to beg because they never come. Some of them are dead. Because God who loved us, he paid for our forgiveness when we were sinners. He paid. It is the forgiver who actually pays for the cost of forgiveness. I have learned that really forgiveness means for me and, uh, and you to give up the right to be right. That's what forgiveness is. We give up the right to be right. And we make that decision. And uh, uh, finally, in Ephesians, Paul tells us again, Ephesians uh, um, 4, uh, Gary mentioned about forgiving one another. Then Colossians 3, uh, verse 13, Paul says, bear with each other and uh, forgive whatever grievances. Now, I never understood whatever. Whether it is whatever is somebody who murdered your wife or children, or somebody who did not give you a, a, a pizza. Or it whatever. And so there's nothing that we cannot forgive. And there's nobody who we cannot forgive. And so I want to encourage us, instead of living with bitterness and anger and, and rage, which actually destroy us, God calls each one of us to be men and women who give the gift of forgiveness. The best way to live our life as believers, again, is to practice forgiveness. Because unless we forgive one another, our relationship with Christ is stand. My challenge, my call to each one of us, remember these two things. Forgiveness is giving up the right to be right. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision. Please, would you make that decision to forgive whatever and whoever. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Some of you may need to experience the forgiveness of Christ for the first time. Or some of you may have somebody in your mind that you've not forgiven and you seek forgiveness from. Scriptures are clear, and you've heard a very clear testimony. I don't know how it could be any clearer. And I pray that you don't leave this place without responding to the Savior. Bernadette, would you join us up here? Benjamin, are you out there? Are you still out there somewhere? Come join us, Benjamin. Let's pray, Let's pray for these guys. You know, I, I don't post on Facebook right. regularly, but uh, yesterday I posted, show up at TBC today. It's going to be exciting. Um, I hope you've been moved. I hope the Spirit of God has touched your heart in deep places. And I hope you won't leave just uh, hearing a good story, but just you'll leave with a changed heart. Would you place your hands in this direction? Let's pray for these guys. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us, your mercy to us, your grace to us. Thank you for these dear friends. Thank you, Father, for uh, forgiveness. Thank you for the forgiveness that Jesus gives to us, and thank you for an example of forgiving others. And, Father, we pray. We pray for the pastors that are ministered to in these countries. Father, I pray that alarm will be fruitful. I pray that lives will be changed. And I pray, Father, for the tens of thousands of people that gather in their congregations, that they will hear the message of peace, forgiveness, and reconciliation in Jesus and with one another. 
And Father, we pray. We pray for our dear friends, Father, that you would continue to use them in great ways. Watch over, protect them, and allow them to experience your grace and your mercy. And Father, I pray in this room right now, some of us need to come before you. We need to ask your forgiveness first. Because we've carried grudges and bitterness and malice and hate and anger towards others. And I pray that we drop that burden right now at the cross and then be reconciled to those folks. And some need to know Jesus for the first time. And I pray that will take place. So we pray all this in the mighty name of our Savior. Amen.